Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was about the relationship and letting it evolve. Ross Lovegrove. Probably one of the most well-known pieces we've ever done is called the Go Chair. And it was the first chair ever made out of magnesium. And it started as a simple design, not even a design brief about, oh, let's do an inexpensive aluminum stack chair. And we stuck with the process that many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars later, allowed us to introduce the first chair ever made of magnesium because we didn't want to give up on the feel of the piece because it couldn't be made in aluminum. Hi everyone, I'm Amy. I'm Jamie and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Jerry Helling. Jerry Helling is president and creative director of Bernhardt Design and has been with the company for over 27 years. During that time, he's jump-started the careers of many well-known international designers and moved the needle forward in how American contemporary design is regarded globally. He's also the first president of Be Original Americas, a trade association dedicated to celebrating the power of original design while exposing the harm done by fakes and knockoffs. He is widely respected in the furniture world for being a champion of the arts, a mentor to emerging designers, and an advocate for authenticity and originality. He's also got a keen eye, a sharp mind, and a kind heart. Let's talk to Jerry. Jerry Helling from Bernhardt Design located in Lenore, North Carolina. I'm president and creative director of our company. I do it because I love design and furniture. (laughs) Well, Jamie and I love design and furniture too. That's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. We always like to go back to the very beginning. We want to know what your roots were like, where you grew up. Can you paint the picture of your childhood for us? I will. uh, I'll do my very best. It was an interesting childhood. I grew up in a small town in eastern Colorado. The name of the town was Idalia, Colorado. I grew up on a ranch, and I had eleven people in my graduating class. What? So when I went to university, I would say I'm from a really small, a really small high school. And they would say, how many people did you have in your class? And I would go, 
11. And they would go, oh, 1100 is really pretty big. I only had 800. <laughs> so, so it, and I went to school and I started school at USC in Los Angeles. So going from a small ranch in eastern Colorado to USC was, let's say it was quite a change. I can imagine. what As a child, what kinds of things fascinated you? And did you have like a lot of wide open spaces and animals and farm equipment? Or like, what was that like? Yes, um, <laughs> I all of the above, it was a large ranch. And I rode horses and worked because that's what you did when you lived on a ranch. And I was always most interested in the entertainment industry, in films and in music. And in the summers, I would go to New York. I always had a strong interest outside of rural America, let's put it that way. So was the ranch a family business? It was. It was a ranch that my grandfather started at the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s and it had been in the business and that's what my father did none of his children chose to do that (laughs) my sister lives in Denver my brother lives in Minneapolis but it had been a family business and it's still a family business on through my cousins now I'm fascinated by this because it's the opposite of how I grew up what kind of ranch was it was it a cattle ranch or a what it was, was the... it was it was both a cattle ranch and a farm. So ah. It was a large cattle ranch and it was a farm with irrigation and they grew crops and I was never at all interested in the farming side of it but I did like the ranch portion of it riding horses and we would have roundups of cattle kind of like a John Wayne film sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. (laughs) Exactly. And when I was in college, my fraternity brothers would come down for roundup and that sort of thing. Everyone riding horses. And I think everyone thought it was like going to a dude ranch or something. (laughs) Now, when you live there and work there all the time, it's a very difficult life. Mm. You have to work very hard. I believe it. A lot all those animals require a lot of upkeep, not to mention the land. And um, so you weren't expecting this one, were you? I I love it. I didn't know you were such a cowboy. Um, (laughs) I said I send I send a picture to people. I've got a I've got one picture of me riding a horse when I was younger because everyone I tell this story to, they're like, oh, yeah, really? I think (laughs) I think you're embellishing this story. I was like, no, this is real. Okay, we're going to need that photo. Have it on standby for us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You said you were always intrigued by the entertainment industry and movies and music. What kinds of movies and music were you drawn to? And did the Westerns kind of seem fake to you because you were really living it? The Western film? Yeah, Western. Yeah, like cowboy movies. You know, I didn't really ever draw that correlation. The life I was living was more like, I don't know if you've ever heard of a film done by Peter Bogdanovich called The Last Picture Show mm-hmm. mm. from the early 70s that was shot in black and white. And it was about a small ranch town and the isolation of it. So th- that sort of film seemed uh, very realistic. 
Westerns were probably several generations removed. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like entertainment. Well, I, I'm curious because you were exposed to movies, television. You went to New York on this in the summer. So you knew you had exposure to the outside world and other things that were happening around the world or around the country. So it sounds like your parents were pretty like open to you being exposed to society and culture and music and art and those kinds of things. Is that kind oh, of where your creativity came from? I, I think very, very much so. I think my mother probably supported that because I would have other crazy ideas for them. It was somewhat <laughs> probably surprising that their eldest son would choose to go to USC to college. There were not many people from Eastern Colorado who would make that kind of decision, but they had supported that my entire life. And they would let me go and spend time in New York in the summer. And I had an uncle who lived there and they would let me go to Los Angeles and spend time. So they they were very supportive about that. Mm. They knew I wasn't particularly interested in ranching or farming. I'm interested in the teenage years, like, because for me, that's like when I really started to bristle against the boundaries of my small town, when I really started to feel hemmed in by it. And I started to really, you know, look around and and start to make my next move. Do you have a story or anything from your teenage years or your adolescence that kind of explains that transition from being a teenager to an adult? What kind of informed your adult self? Yeah, whoa, that's some, that's a real question. <laughs> yeah, Jerry, so just yeah. <laughs> we're going to need to open your brain up and really see the insides. Oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could do that. You know, I was always very matter of fact. When I was 15 years old, it was, okay, I'm going to go to film school in L.A., And I didn't, there was no awakening. I just always knew I was going to do something else. And it didn't particularly bother me Mm -hmm. that I was growing up in a way that probably wasn't in alignment with what I really wanted to do the rest of my life. It it just seemed kind of normal. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't really rebel against anything. I, it didn't seem surprising to me, I was so shocked when people would be shocked that I was from a ranch and had 11 people in my graduating class. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that, I never, I didn't think about that. <laughs> so I stepped in the middle of LA and started, I lived with a, the senator's son from Nevada. I mean, it, it just all seemed normal to me. I think it's fun that you came to LA and you were the anomaly for everyone. Yes, and that surprised me <laughs> because I had never really thought about it. But I think, I think in retrospect, when I think about it as an adult now, I, that was a pretty ballsy move on my part mm-hmm. that I did not have a lot of that kind of worldly experience. And just to move to Los Angeles by myself, not knowing anybody, I guess I'm rather proud I did that. But at the time, yeah. I didn't think I was doing anything unusual. 
No. And, and that's the best time to do it. Cause you're not thinking about it. You know, when you're young, you just do stuff because you want to do it and you don't think about all the consequences that come um, as you get older. All you can think about are the consequences. And, and the exactly. Risks. <laughs> <laughs> so true. It's good to be young and fearless. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So um, obviously you went there because you were driven by some sort of love of cinema or filmmaking. And you also ended up pursuing a master's in motion picture marketing. And I'm really interested in hearing about like, what kind of skills did you pick up in college? What kind of stuff did you learn about motion picture marketing? I guess backtracking a little bit. I, I went to SC and was a cinema major. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really interested at all in making films. I was only interested in the marketing aspect of them oh. and how the films were sold, how the, the trailers were selected, what the one-sheet artwork looked like, what the previews looked like. It was always about the marketing of the product rather than being a filmmaker. Wow. So that was kind of unusual when I was choosing between colleges. I, again, I only selected schools that had film programs like uh, SC, UCLA, Cal State Northridge. But when I would go on college visits, I would be calling these people at the marketing departments of like Columbia Pictures or Paramount and be talking to them. So it was kind of an unusual thing. The film people didn't really know what to do with me, and I wasn't really interested in a cinema degree. That's why I had to kind of spin it and ended up getting a master's specifically related to marketing of motion pictures which isn't really a master's. They kind of let me create it myself. I was wondering, because I've never heard of that program before. <laughs> oh, exactly. There, there is no such program. They yeah. didn't know what to do about a thesis. They finally let me write <laughs> I did my professional paper rather than a thesis on how to salvage. Again, this might be going back too far, but there was a film made called Heaven's Gate that was directed by the director of The Deer Hunter, Michael Cimino. And it was so out of control, and he spent so much money that it ended up bankrupting the studio United Artists. Mm. And there have been a number of books written about it. And my professional paper was how to salvage that film and re-spin it and remarket it and recut it to make it something that might be appealing to people. So very specific. Yes. But fascinating in a totally different aspect of film. Exactly. Yeah, and it's, really, it's really cool. the marketing aspect of it rather than the creation aspect of it. I love it because you're thinking about a film is, is a bit malleable, right? You, you've got your vision and then you've got all the parts that get edited together and that can come together in a number of different ways. And what you're really thinking about is the life the film has after it leaves the studio and goes out into the world and how the psychology of how people receive it and are either attracted or repelled by it. Exactly. That is fascinating. Uh, how you might alter the message to make it more appealing to them, even though it is somewhat the same product. 
if you set a tone and expectation that people find it appealing and interesting to begin with, they're going to be more inclined to like it. It's true. And that tone and expectation is also what weeds out the people who won't necessarily be drawn to it because they won't be inclined to like it. Exactly. Oh, this is all starting to make sense, Jerry. I'm I'm stirred. The puzzle pieces are coming together. Well, we've only got half the story, so we got to keep going. But one of the things I'm I'm wondering, just we didn't really cover this at all, but I'm curious as to why film like what was it about film that was so attractive to you in terms of marketing? Because you can market any kind of product, right? You could have been interested in pencils or I don't know, paper or, you know, Tylenol or something like that. But why, why film? What was it about the moving picture that was so fascinating to you? Wow. I've really never thought about this and reflecting on it now. It, it was probably the storytelling aspect, the larger than life feeling that film gives you and the experience that it gives you that was so the opposite of growing up in a very isolated place. Mm. So it was probably the visual version of somebody who becomes an avid reader and the stylistic. I I was really interested, which I think ultimately led to design. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in the stylistic aspect of it the cinematography, the set design, those aspects of filmmaking. I think a lot of those aspects really cross over into furniture. You know, there is that idea of theater. There's certainly an idea of storytelling. So how did it actually transition for you? How did you go from film to furniture and where did you start out? (laughs) This is another unbelievable thing. (laughs) But when I graduated, I was in L.A. trying to get a a job. And again, this was very specific and there weren't many opportunities. And I spent probably three or four months and I would go out to the pool every day and see all of these 60 year olds sitting around reading daily variety. And it just dawned on me that even though I'm very interested in this and would like a career doing it, that I can't rely on the randomness that's associated with a career in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. that I had the desire for it, but I didn't have the stomach for it. That is a very self-aware realization. It was. And at the time I wasn't very proud of it, but it was, it, it was the fact of it. You know, I have to be doing something where I know if I do a B is likely to happen. If you're in the entertainment industry, you can do A all day long and be fantastic and incredibly talented and end up being 60 years old and B has never happened because there's not this linear relationship between doing something and being good at it and then succeeding. Yeah. I couldn't deal with that randomness. Mm -hmm. So I decided I have to get a real job. (laughs) I I have to at least start with a career because my parents supported me all the way through grad school and they were still supporting me. And it's like, okay, I have to get a job and maybe something will happen later that allows me to go back to this. 
And so I signed up for a headhunter that just started sending me on interviews. Mm -hmm. And they sent me on an interview to Steelcase for a job that didn't exist. They had made a mistake. Oh. But I spent I spent the afternoon the, there wasn't a job at Steelcase any longer. But I met the person and started talking to them about this design furniture industry and immediately became very interested in the idea that there is this amazing creative aspect to it, but it's also a business. Ah. It's not totally random that there's all the creativity, but there's also a legitimate business behind it that isn't necessarily based on luck. Right. Obviously, any success mm -hmm. is, to some degree is based on luck and circumstance. But again, a more linear path to where I could say, okay, this sounds like a cool industry. So I went back to the headhunter and said, thank you. I should be upset, but this was really cool. Start sending me for any jobs you can find that are in this furniture industry. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know I didn't know anything about it, but I started doing very quick research and started learning as much as I could about the industry. And the first job I could find was in a, a furniture dealership being mm -hmm. a salesperson, going out selling furniture to people. But very quickly, I was able to pivot that into the clients I attracted were the people that were letting me have input into their design decisions and oh. their design direction. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I, I, I kind of established this foothold that again wasn't particularly orthodox for a furniture salesman. Mm -mm. But I landed some really interesting clients that let me do everything for them. That's interesting. I through college, I sold furniture, too. And that Did you really. Yeah, that wasn't my first exposure to furniture, but it was something I really enjoyed doing because I really liked furniture. But my favorite part was like helping people pick out fabrics. You know, they would like bring in their paint chips and I would sit down with them and we'd look at the fabric wall and we'd talk about it. And it was so fun. It really is that being part of that process it's sort of like your production designing somebody's life a little bit. Like they've given you a little bit of influence over helping them shape their space and the atmosphere and the mise-en-scene of their daily existence. Oh, completely. And most people are a little bit not particularly confident, so they're pretty open to help. Mm -hmm. It's just a nice experience. I think one of the things... This is totally off topic. I'm not really off topic, but this is an aside because I'm thinking about it right now. When I was selling furniture to people, like they would come in and I realized like they don't know anything about color or pattern or what goes together. And when I was sitting there, I was like, I kind of know what works, but it was like instinctive. And I think that's why I got excited because I realized like I had this weird ability not that I was like naturally talented as an interior designer, because I'm not, but like I just had an ability or an affinity for like pattern and color and texture and size. And it was really exciting. And, and scale and what yeah. works or doesn't work. 
and when I, I was saying most people aren't confident, what I really meant was everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> I was politely trying to say exactly what you said. <laughs> most people just don't know, and they don't have, they're incredible surgeons but or accountants, but they, they don't really have a feel for it. Mm-hmm. And there is kind of, uh, I, again, it, it's one of those things that I don't know how you were, but I kind of took it for granted that, oh, yeah, this is right. I know this works. Yeah, I totally I didn't did. really evaluate where that came from. So that was the origin of your connection to the furniture world. And then what was the trajectory from there? What happened next? Yes, please. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. 
Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designers Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. So I was working at this furniture dealership in Denver, and I was a really good friend with the Bernhardt design rep. And because I thought Bernhardt was the coolest company, and they were doing the most incredible things then. And she was telling me that Bernhardt had an opening for a national sales manager. And I said, well, call Ann Bernhardt and see if she wants to hire me. <laughs> just as a joke, <laughs> because I, I had no national experience. I'd only had 18 months selling furniture locally. And she gave me an interview and I flew to North Carolina. Wow. And it was, again, just one of those amazing things that happens. I guess we talk about, I was saying I, I wanted something that didn't rely on luck as much. Mm-hmm. This was pure luck <laughs> that I was able to get hooked up with Ann Bernhardt and that she had a family-owned company and she could make rather unorthodox decisions and decide that she saw something in a young, inexperienced person who didn't have the resume and go ahead and offer them a job and give them a chance because she didn't have this board of directors she had to report to. She was able to make the decision. What do you think it was she saw in you? What do you think it, yeah, like, why did she take a chance on you? Oh, that's a good one again. (laughs) I think she probably, I think it was like so many things. It was great chemistry. Mm -hmm. I I think number one, I passionately liked what she was doing and what she was doing with the company. Yeah. So I think she was able to feel that, that I wasn't there just trying to get a job. 
I was there because I loved what they were doing yeah. and what she was doing. And then I think we just have, I mean, we've ended up having a wonderful working relationship and friendship, a similar sense of humor, just a comfortableness that I think she probably decided, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Let's give this guy a shot. <laughs> so I ended up, I didn't even know where North Carolina was when I went on this interview. <laughs> I assumed all of North Carolina, I thought everything was Charleston, which is actually <laughs> South Carolina. And I ended up three weeks later living in North Carolina. Haven't looked back. Yeah. Are you single at this time or did you bring your family with you or did you find your family later? I, I brought my wife. Okay. So she had lived in, she was living and working in New York and she had to move to Denver to marry me. And I kept joking, well, I'm really working you down the corporate ladder here. Now you're living in <laughs> Western North Carolina. <laughs> she was a very good sport to go along with this. <laughs> Well, okay, so that is a tremendous story. And you've you've been with Bernhardt ever since. So a very important relationship has formed there. And from what I understand, Bernhardt Design is the contract division that was established in 1981 or thereabouts. And yeah. that's yeah. the subset that deals with contemporary furniture and textiles for the commercial market. And as of the early 90s, you've been creative director. And currently you're creative director and president, but you have been setting a track record for Bernhardt design that is very much about moving the needle forward in terms of both design vision and championing creative capital and education. I want to know why you're so passionate about design and designers, why you're such an advocate, why you believe so strongly in championing design and education and and those are probably two related but very different topics. The first one is I'm I'm passionate about creating something good that I would want. That's always been one of my mottos. Do I want to own it? Mm-hmm. That there's such a difference between really good and almost good, and that you can. You can work to create truly good things and design and particularly furniture. People have an unusual relationship, I think, with furniture. Yeah, it's a very intimate relationship. It really is. It sounds so it sounds really bizarre, but you have a very different relationship with a chair or your sofa, really, than you do with your computer. There's mm-hmm. this emotional aspect to it, and I've always been intrigued by that, and seeing how you can really get people excited, where they feel really passionate about it also, that they really like this or like that. I'm so surprised when I go out and I talk to people and they go, oh yeah, I love the X chair or the Y chair, and I'm always, you really know the names of those chairs? Mm-hmm. And they do because they like them. So I've always been passionate about that aspect of it. Then actually pushing design forward and supporting designers. I think that came over time. That the more I was in this industry, the more I was 
exposed to working with different designers, I became more and more passionate about their lives and understood where they were coming from, from a creative standpoint. And this probably segues back to the film marketing thing. It is about helping them move their idea to a point where other people like their idea because they like the creation because a product can't stand just on an idea. Designers are so wedded to, well, this was my inspiration. This was my concept. And the person that is going to fall in love with it and buy it, they don't really care. They're responding very viscerally to what you have created. And there are many designers that have to cross that bridge and they have to trust you that you're not diluting their idea. You're helping Mm -hmm. them move their idea to a place that people are going to really respond to. And it might have to change from what your original concept and inspiration was, but it's going to change into something good because you're going to create something that people want. And that intimate relationship with furniture starts with the creation and then the owner forms their own long-term relationship with this creation. And that intimacy builds over time. Absolutely. But you're right, it can't stand on the designer's first draft. And that inspiration has to translate into a creation that can now go out in the world and have its own personality and form its own relationships with new users. That's exactly right. And oddly enough, that's very difficult for many designers to get over that hurdle because you start creating in your own mind and it becomes what it is to you. And then you become very wedded to the concept of this is what it is, not necessarily this is what it should be. Mm. So for a designer really to be able to get their very best work, they have to trust who they're working with very much. And that is why oftentimes you see, let's say, an inconsistency in designers' work from when they work with creative director or company A and company B. They will do amazing things because for company A because they've got a relationship and an understanding and being able to move it through the process than they do with company B. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Absolutely, I have. And that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes hard to say, oh, I love them. They're a great designer. And, and most of them are great designers. But you're really in love with what they created for company A rather than you might have kind of liked company B, but not as much. Mm-hmm. So it's this really intertwined trusting relationship. Absolutely. And the more I got into this, the more I worked with people, I became really inspired and motivated by trying to help people, which turned into helping the people that needed help, which are young designers and designers that don't necessarily have really large portfolios of product, Mm -hmm. people that are kind of beginning their career and can benefit from having help and direction. 
Well, just to tell our listeners about some of that help you're talking about, you're referring to there's a 14-week program at Art Center where students of an, of design can actually go through the paces of what it would be like to bring a, a furniture piece into production and into the market. And then also a scholarship with ICFF for showcasing emerging designers. Yes, we've kind of taken it in multiple steps. The first thing that I discovered was college students or people that are just graduated that will present their ideas. It's like, oh my God, these guys have a, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know how this thing's going to get made. <laughs> they, they don't know how it's going to get made. They don't know how to present it. Again, they're stuck in the academia of it. Right. Wouldn't it be great to be able to allow students to go through a real life, real time process so they would know what it was like to actually work with a client when they graduated? Wow. And that's why we started the program with Art Center. And we've been doing it for 12 or 13 years now. Then the next area that we moved into was, okay, you started a career in America. And 10 years ago, it was a little bit difficult to have a design career in America. There weren't as many opportunities as there are today. So there's a point in your career where you need more exposure. And ICFS Studio was about trying to create that exposure in America that was focused very practically as opposed to Satellite in Milan, where Satellite is, it can be very practical or it can be very conceptual. Mm -hmm. And it's an international viewing place for young designers. Given the fact that America's rather large, difficult market, we focused ICFS Studio on being very practical, that we're going to choose the best of young designers' work to bring there, and hopefully they're going to make contacts to get that product made or get contracts to do new design work, but very practical in nature. And then have just moved into other layers of, okay, how do we help? Now we do something called American Design Honors, which we're just taking and focusing on one American designer a year that is doing amazing work that is in the slightly more advanced part of their career, but hasn't become a household name yet. Ah. And we've done programs where we've taken American design to Europe, to London, a program called American Made Me. So a lot of it has been about trying to promote American design because we're at a real disadvantage in this country as designers go that we just don't have things like VIA in France right? that supports design, the British Design Council. I mean, they have government money. They have industry money. There is a lot of money available. They're taken around the world on exhibitions. In America, you're you're kind of on your own. Yeah. So in a small way, we've tried to help people as much as we can get a platform. Yeah. I'm interested in, in, in how you're choosing people because you're clearly very gifted. A lot of these designers who are in the ICFF Spotlight have gone on to have really successful design careers, and you really nurture that creative process. 
with the talent. So how do you find these people and how do you decide who to work with? It's about meeting the criteria. Is it well-designed? Can it be made? And is it marketable? Mm -hmm. And to meet all three of those, uh, of those requirements, let's say that narrows the pool down significantly that they may hit one of them or two of them, but to, to be all three of those things, you end up with a really interesting group of people. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been anybody who went through, you went through that process with who didn't meet all the criteria, but you still saw something in them and collaborated with them? There have been people that I have advised. Mm. I've never collaborated with them because one of the rules of the only way that I could see that ICFS studio works is that it doesn't look like a Bernhardt farm club. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That um, it but, is that it's a standalone legitimate thing. Now yes. I have actually ended up working with a couple people out of that, but I've tried to be very hands off as, and promoting opportunities with other mm-hmm. manufacturers for them. What about any specific standouts that you've worked with in the past? It doesn't have to just be for ICFF studio. It could be for any collaboration you've done, like where you can give us an example of how that whole process works from, from bringing, you know, from bringing on a designer to bringing a product to market. I mean, you don't have to go into like super crazy detail, but was there anything that kind of stood out? Yeah. Bernhard design has worked with a roster of tons, illustrious designers that, you know, maybe weren't even as big of a name before you started working with them. I'm wondering, yeah, what, how that relationship gets sparked to tack on to Jamie's question. I'll go with how the relationship starts. It's very much about chemistry and gut feeling mm-hmm. with somebody that I like something they've done because many of the designers haven't necessarily designed furniture before that I like something about what they're doing and I see something really interesting and they happen to be, I've got this rule of only working with nice people. There (laughs) there are so many, that's so important in this world. So many talented people, but you've got such a short life. You should work with the talented, really nice people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pardon Isn't that the truth? That's the truth. (laughs) I I know there are some people that are incredibly, I I just don't have much place for the ego. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a really nice person, you can do great work. And that is so much better than dealing with a difficult person. Agree. Most of the people I work with, 98% of them, they're just a wonderful relationship because they're wonderful people and they're all really talented. And the relationship just kind of evolves and we end up doing something really good because we don't really start with design briefs. Mm. Very rarely do I say, give me a chair that does this. It starts out of, let's work together. Show me some ideas relating to this. I worked with a group in Spain, a young group, that what started out as a table ended up turning into a chair. It it was about the relationship and letting it evolve. Ross Lovegrove, probably one of the most well-known pieces we've ever done, is called the Go Chair. And it was the first chair ever made out of magnesium. 
and it started as a simple design, not even a design brief about, oh, let's do an inexpensive aluminum stack chair. And we stuck with the process that many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars later allowed us to introduce the first chair ever made of magnesium because we didn't want to give up on the feel of the piece because it couldn't be made in aluminum. I love it. The stories are really take all, all different kinds of paths. Well, one project I did recently, it was one of my favorite projects, was with a young French designer, Ocean Delaine. Mm-hmm. And she had designed this amazing sofa that she had just put her life into for three years in design school. And I saw it and said, you know, you're going to get so many people that want to come and talk to you about this. I would like to talk to you when it, when all of the hoopla dies down because she was being exhibited by Via at Maison Objet in Paris. So she talked to a lot of people and she flew to London and met me and I go, let me guess what everyone said. They told you all the ways that they're going to change the product to commercialize it, didn't they? She was like, how did you know? I go, I knew that was what was going to happen. And now it's up to you. You have to make the decision. I will work with you to commercialize this product and you will make more money. Or I will do this project with you in its purest form, the way you wanted it to be. And you're not going to make any money. But you are going to get a lot of attention and exposure and respect mm. for what you were able to create. And here's this young French designer that said, I want to do it the real way. I don't care about the money. That's a hard so decision it, to make yeah. if your livelihood depends it, on it. I mean, that's yeah. a really hard decision. And she chose to do the pure version of this product. And... That's why I'm using this as an example of one of my favorite projects recently, because we also had to make that decision. We didn't right. make any money. We made a big investment in doing something because it was creative and different and right, rather yeah. than being really commercial. Hmm. Now, this probably makes me sound like not a very good business person. But I'm wondering, cause, because you do have to sort of, you have to decide that building the brand and moving the needle has value. And that value may not be quantifiable in dollars the way selling product is. But it has a lot of value in terms of being a taste-making entity. And, and because it's creative and right, and because you're a steward of design... Did you have to justify that decision or did you have you been with Bernhardt long enough that you can operate on gut like that and just know that it's going to work out? Luckily, I'm able to operate uh, on instinct. I obviously shared with the people that were working on this project that this is one of this is a project that we're doing because it's wonderful, not one that we're going to make a lot of money on. And everyone goes, oh, okay. Because you can't, you wouldn't have a company if you didn't realize there had to be a balance. 
Yeah. But so often companies lose the important side of doing really good stuff. They get so caught in the commercial, is it going to sell? Does the market want it? That you lose track of the fact that sometimes the market doesn't know. Sometimes you just have to do wonderful things. But it's a balancing act. Well, cheers to you for balancing that out. I remember that sofa and I, I've met Ocean and I just was delighted by the whole thing, everything about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm getting a little she, bit choked it, up when I think about it. She, she's absolutely wonderful. And she created something wonderful that hadn't been done before. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit to your personal life or things that maybe aren't quite as uh, businessy in nature. <laughs> Obviously, you're super connected to the work and to the stewardship of design and to the nurturing and and support of designers. Is there something else that just fuels your desire for life? Obviously, I have a family. And I yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I better answer that question first. <laughs> yes, having a family is, at the end of the day, more important than passion for design. And I think becomes an integral part of who you are and makes you more passionate because you've got, having children, you get, you get some sort of perspective. I don't know. I, I didn't know what it was until it happened, but it's been very good. How many kids? Three boys. Yes. So, which was perfect. We only had to have one set of toys and one set of clothes and just hand them down. <laughs> and you're also already trained as a cattle rancher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a big music fan. So I spend a lot of time searching out music. Are you a crate digger, a, a live music aficionado? Do you play an instrument? I do not play an instrument. Oh, interesting. Again, it's kind of like I don't know why I'm so enthralled with this because it's like cinema again. I'm not really doing it, but there's something about the appreciation of it that I get very excited when I discover a new musical act that is really, really good. Yeah. Well, music is, it makes you feel something same way does. cinema does and, and furniture. And again, it's very malleable and it's like the whole marketing thing, the, the remixing of a track, you can create a completely different feel and a, appeal to a different person by doing the right kind of remix to a track. Hmm. Uh, I want to know if you have any secret talent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, are you amazing at chopping onions or <laughs> other than being able to like, you know, steer, a, steer, a, uh, I'm sorry, rope a, a horse. And is it steer cattle? Wait, I don't even know how to talk cowboy yeah, rancher. You were talking about Can you tie a lasso? I'm watching this. the animals or whatever you were talking about. Oh, she's never been around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Detroit. Yeah, there you have it. Well, you should know something. I, you know, it's so sad. I don't. I don't believe you. I can't whistle. I don't believe it. I can't, I can't do 
I don't have any unusual talent. I think everybody has a weird, than, a I'll weird talent every... or a secret or a, I think everybody Didn't has really? a secret talent. I mean, it might not be like the most original thing in the world, but like, I don't know. Can you like tie a cherry stem into a knot with your tongue or something like that? Like that? I don't know. Like, no, you're sending me to a dark place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and this might be a good thing to have included on this. You don't have to have a secret talent. Life will still work out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people have talent, but it's just not a secret. Hey, exactly. So your talents that's are not secret. Yeah, at least you share them with everybody. So that's good. Well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> but being a type A personality, you have me under terrible pressure to go develop a secret talent. Um, well, okay. Along those lines, cause I, my next question was going to be, is there anything you feel like you need to accomplish in this lifetime? It doesn't have to be a secret talent, but is there, is there something, a skill or an adventure you want to embark on? Mm, am I, oh my God, I'm going to sound too well adjusted and complacent. <laughs> I am pretty, I'm pretty happy. I've, been able to do so much mm -hmm. and meet so many people and travel so many places. I don't have this bucket list of things I think I need to do. I just get so excited about and passionate about great things that are put in front of me, interesting things that we could do. And it just happens. I don't have to go in search of it. There's a lot of stuff coming up this year. I don't know if there's anything you want our listeners to know about that you can talk about at this time. Yeah, well, we're working on a two or three things that are really exciting and interesting to me right now. One of them we're going to be previewing in May, a new collection by Terry Crews, which has been such an amazing relationship. The idea that an actor who's actually an artist, who's actually a designer, Mm -hmm. is doing furniture and has really great ideas and isn't just a sketch artist that's signing his name over to be licensed by somebody who's actually doing it. Mm -hmm. That entire thing is kind of exciting. Yeah, and he's super nice. <laughs> nice to work with. <laughs> and he's so talented and the celebrity aspect really has nothing to do with it. And I think in the beginning, people thought, oh, it, it was a publicity stunt on, on mm -hmm. one of our two parts. But it is, we just started working on year three last week. Oh, I love it. So he's, he's got a cool new thing, which is a total about face from what he did the first time. Mm. No way. Yeah. I'm excited. It, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not as iconic. It's a very usable public base type of product which is really good because he did some very iconic furniture to start with mm -hmm. we're doing a new project with harry and claudia washington oh mm -hmm. i love them aren't they the best they're, they're the best <laughs> and they have a new product a new chair that's coming out that is really going to be interesting for people they were so they had such a success when they did uh, a a product Mitt. called Mitt. Yeah. And they have a new product uh, named for their young son, Diego, that's going to come out. 
And probably the most interesting to me is working with a textile designer from Tehran. Ooh. His name is Tahir Assad Bakhtari, and he's part of the Bakhtari tribe in Iran. And I became acquainted with him because he's an artist who did these art exhibitions, creating rugs and pieces of art from tribal weaves, where he went into rural Iran and helped resurrect the art of what he calls tribal weaving, is baft weaving. And I agreed to do a, a talk with him last year so that I could meet him because I'd never met him. Five minutes after the talk, I said, okay, do you want to work together? And he said, yes. Uh, so we've spent the year developing this textile project, which is based a lot on inspiration from Iran and weaving. And he's now photographing it over there. And it's been amazing. So talking to him when the uprising was going on, mm-hmm. uh, I would be on a, hit the cell phone with him. I've, I've learned some interesting things. I was going to go to Iran for a photo shoot. It's very difficult for us to go to Iran. I didn't realize just how difficult. It's difficult for us to mail something there. So there certainly are barriers mm-hmm. between our two countries, but there's certainly been no barrier in our relationship. Oh, wow. Really interesting. I'm excited to see that collection. Yeah, it's cool. And and meet him. Yes. Will he be at ICFF? Oh, yeah. Oh, Great. wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. It's so, especially knowing that you're curating relationships and design for nice people as well. It's always wonderful to meet the designers that you work with because they're always such wonderful personalities and i love i love connecting their personalities to their work like physically it's really great oh uh, well, yeah i've never thought about that <laughs> but it their personalities probably do come through in a way in their yeah work. absolutely <laughs> i love meeting the yeah. people because then you just love the objects even more because you know who made them or who thought them up and have you have you met victor and sarah from raleigh yes Denham? Raleigh Denham, yes, I have. I haven't yet. Uh, I keep hearing about them. They're previewing a new product for us also, uh, so you'll get to meet them. Oh, good. Yeah, party party in the Bernhardt booth at ICFF. (laughs) 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 All right, well, um, I I would love to make sure that our listeners know how to follow Bernhardt and keep up with everything that Bernhardt Design is doing. So do you, could you share the social media and web? And also if you have your, any personal accounts that you want to share? I do not have any personal accounts. I actually have one for uh, music under a pseudonym. Oh, oh. that's your secret. It's not a talent, yeah, that, that but it's is a my secret. secret. You could go find uh, a Facebook account that's strictly devoted to liking and following uh, musicians. Mm. We have uh, an Instagram account and you can follow us at Bernhard Design or on our website at Bernhard.com or it's on Pinterest. Okay. Uh, however you awesome. would like to follow us. <laughs> 
We will include all those links in the show notes so it will be easy to find. And we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. This has been so enjoyable. And I just appreciate so much you sharing your story and your philosophies yes, with us. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you. It's, like I said, you guys do such amazing work. It's, I feel honored that you would spend an hour with me. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. He is so fun. He's so fun. I mean, and what a true steward of design. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. But I mean, I, I couldn't believe he he grew up in such a small town that he had 11 people in his high school graduating class. Like, that's insane to me. <laughs> like 11. Imagine. I know people that had more siblings of, than that. Like, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Our next door neighbors had 12 kids. That's more than his high school. I, I can't even imagine that. Because those are your formative years, and that's, like, the same kids. Like, everybody must have dated each other, like, at least once, right? Oh. Like, it's literally like Big Brother or the real world. Like, what happens when 11 kids go to high school for four years together? I don't don't even know. We're going to have to talk to him about that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But, like... So, okay, he did describe it as remote Mm -hmm. and isolated, but... At the same time, he has traveled the globe many times over. He's worked with international designers. So he's worked with people from all different cultures. Like it certainly either didn't stifle an appetite for the world or maybe it even created part of his voracious appetite Mm, for the world. Maybe. And I think, you know, he said that his parents allowed him to be exposed to all kinds of things and to travel all over. So I think that's another thing is like it was isolating, but they didn't keep him isolated or they didn't allow him to stay isolated. It certainly sounds like they weren't disparaging like those damn city slickers. Yeah, you they know. kind of fostered well, you know. it and accepted it, which was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it kind of gave him an open mind. It's so fascinating to me to hear a business person who's able to operate on gut and has the respect of his company and also his reputation and and the people that he works with that he can and he's you know he's clearly proven himself many times over but he can really move through the world very intuitively mm-hmm. and he's strengthened that for himself yeah by putting a lot of energy into good relationships I love that he fell into it, though, that they were just like, oh, we're going to send you on this steel case interview. And then there was no job there. And then he was like, oh, <laughs> furniture sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's also really self-aware of him to have made what I think is a really gutsy decision. And, and he said it didn't feel good at the time. And I sort of get that he may have felt like it was a capitulation to recognize that he didn't have the stomach for the randomness and the risk of the entertainment industry. But honestly, he's done so much good for the world and had so much influence in the route that he chose. So that was just a a self-awareness that he was able to make that decision instead of like putting himself through, I don't know, years of of struggle trying to figure out if he could be the kind of person that could make it work. Yeah, and it didn't seem like he was driven by, like, money or some sort of ego. He was, like, turned off by that life. Mm-hmm. 
really wanted to do something that like fed his soul. I mean, how fascinating is it though that he wasn't he didn't want to be a filmmaker. He's never wanted to be a furniture maker. He's always wanted to be the guy who helps shepherd the product out in the world. Mhm. Oh my god. Just like he was kind of a shepherd on his ranch as a child. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> He's herding cattle and rounding up. Like, I can see him now, like, throwing a lasso around a bunch of chairs or, like, a bunch of designers and just, like, (laughs) reining them in. (laughs) Great. It really can't be understated, though, like, what a benefactor he is in, in terms of his stewardship. He said one little statement that I think merits us revisiting and highlighting is... Those designers that get the scholarship to be showcased at ICFF Studio, he doesn't want that to be a a farm club for Bernhardt Design. And he Mm -hmm. really does try to facilitate them working with other manufacturers, not just Bernhardt, which is pretty astounding in terms of just in general being the best coach ever for the design world. Yes. Yeah, it is like that. It's, he's like, you know, if you really care about something, you want the best for it. Yeah. Even if it's not you. Yeah. Like if you love somebody, somebody like you want them to be happy. It's kind of like that. Yeah, it's totally like that. Aw, it's <laughs> unconditional love. It is. <laughs> Hey, you guys, thank you for listening. Please do us a favor and subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, like Stitcher, Google Play Music. You can ask Alexa or Siri or all those people. Go to cleverpodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter and read the show notes and learn more about Jerry's work with Bernhardt Design and Be Original Americas. You can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We read every single comment. We really do. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.